We are still on our series, Sweet Dreams. And what this is, we are studying several times in Scripture where God revealed something and revealed himself and his plans to people in their dreams. The way God comes to us in sleep, it says something unique and special that he would come to us when we are not seeking him, when we are truly checked out, and then in that place, he would speak to us. It just, it's an incredible picture of mercy and all these pictures are pictures of mercy. There's this interesting thing I read recently. It's a growing trend, primarily among engineering firms, that the project never sleeps. And it's, it's a product of, of globalization. What they'll do is they basically pick three offices that will work on a complex issue. It could be bridges, could be computer engineering, whatever it's going to be. But the office in America will start, they'll work eight hours, then they ship it to, an, then they'll email it, have a quick rendezvous with an office in Asia, and then they check out, go home, see their families, go to sleep. Asia works on it for another eight hours. And then Asia checks in with Europe, they give them all the information, Europe takes the project and they keep moving. So that when the guy who started it gets it back, it's three days advanced. So while people are sleeping, the project never sleeps. So it, it, over the course of 24 hours, three eight-hour shifts, three engineers, three engineering teams developing the thing so it speeds along at triple the rate that it would otherwise. Now think about that for your own life. Think about the things you're working on, house projects, homework, caring for the kids. What if like when you woke up in the morning, it was like two more people got on that and put in a full you worth of work on it, like three of you, that would be amazing. It just keeps going and it just speeds along and it moves along because somebody is always working the night shift. And I guess the question is, does God ever stop working on our lives? Ron Mill, uh, former pastor at Beaverton Foursquare, still on the radio, by the way, immortal. He's still there on Sunday mornings in the Portland metro area. You can hear Ron Mill share the word. Um, he's passed away now, but he loved to say that God worked the night shift. In fact, he wrote a book with that very title. And uh, it's this amazing uh, understanding that God never grows weary and he never gives up and that he's always working on our behalf. And it's a, sort of an invitation to sweet sleep. And not just literal sleep, but rest at the end of the day that we could step away from a project knowing that God will pick it up and he'll keep working on our behalf. But that becomes very hard to see when life becomes extremely chaotic and when it seems like everything is going incredibly wrong. It seems that there is not enough of me to cover the problems. And it isn't like when I go to sleep, there's a God picking it up. It seems that there's just not enough getting done. And what I wanted to do today is I wanted to read a story about God working the night shift because it's not the most peaceful story. It's God working on people's behalf even while they sleep. Now, the context of this is it's, it's after the exile. Israel has been pulled into Babylon. They are in captivity, and it is getting uh, worse and worse. And this is a, a difficult thing because it is the coming through on a longstanding warning. From the time the, the covenants were written and Moses is declaring things, before they took the promised land, it was said, one day your descendants will be unfaithful and I'm going to kick them out of the land you don't even have yet. But if they come back to me and they cry out for mercy, I will restore them. And uh, to be jettisoned now from the land, it means something really deep. And I think for us, it's important to understand 
what did the land represent to Israel? Because it is maybe a little different than we think. The land, it's the hope that God is with them. It was the promise of where they would go to become a nation, to become a priesthood, to become a kingdom, to have a purpose in something greater than themselves. It is the proof that they are the promised and chosen people to be in a promised and chosen land. So to be jettisoned from it is a deep existential crisis. There's sort of this understanding, or at least a narrative that goes around even modern day Israel, that there's this sense of it's a, it's a country based on responding to the Holocaust, that if they have their own country and their own military, their own land, that won't happen again. And that might be the way Westerners look at it. But for Jewish people, the sense of being God's chosen people and not being in the land is so difficult that there is a much deeper reason behind why they want to be there. Even to this day, it is a, it is a deeply meaningful thing to be in the land. So to be out of it is incredibly disorienting. And it's a constant reminder of their failures. And at this point, even though there's a longstanding promise, you will go back to the land. And I think about that sometimes. I think about what it was like when you were in the land and you were told you'll get kicked out and then brought back. That probably was a bummer all around. But once you get kicked out, the promise of coming back was probably the, the sweetest promise they could ever think. Sometimes you're just not ready for God's word until you really, really need it. But at this point, it is not good yet. It's bad and it's getting worse. The first thing that Babylon did is they took the brightest and best of, of all the lands they conquered. So when they took Judah, they took the brightest and the best. That's when Daniel was taken. That's when the royal family was taken. That's when the business owners are taken and they're brought to Babylon to steal strength from everyone they conquered so that the central imperial power would be the most powerful. And so they all leave, the best of them leave, and, and Jerusalem, the whole country, begins to decay extremely quickly because the leaders are gone, the wise ones are gone, the teachers are gone, the readers are gone. And it gets bad to where now they're taking the rest. The city's being emptied and it's being trod upon, honestly, like a, a ruin. People aren't really living there. It's post-apocalyptic back home. And without a king, they have no king, they have no commander. There's no one really incredibly high ranking. So who is going to advocate for them? Because they're now at the mercy of this enormous, crushing, and powerful empire. Babylon is in control. And so God is going to act in this story to establish them some safety. One of the most beautiful themes in the exile period in all of Scripture is uh, how God cared for Israel. Though they had no power and though they're at the mercy of other people, God comes around and he cares for his people and he protects them. He watches over them. This lowly people constantly find themselves having someone sitting next to the king. And it's God's mercy on them. Daniel's already cream of the crop, and he's going to be raised up again. The story is going to end. I'm just going to give the plot twist. Daniel is the one who's selected to uh, be delegated great authority and protect his people. And it all starts with a bad day. So let's read the bad day. We're going to be in Daniel 2. Uh, we're going to read 1 through 6. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians and enchanters and sorcerers and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. Now that's interesting. Uh, we'll get more into that in a minute. Uh, when they came and they stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, may the king live forever. 
Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it for you. The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it. This is like the uh, demand from Mad King. I've had a divine dream and I'm not gonna tell you what it is to interpret it, which is really difficult because actually they have found many books that the Babylonians took dreams very seriously. They always meant something. And there was actually like a book, a manual of, of what this meant and what that meant. And they would have gone through it, analyzed it according to the book and have given him an interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't want that. He wants a truly divine interpretation. So he places this insane kitty gate on it. You need to tell me what I dreamed and I'm not going to tell you. It starts out as an incredibly bad day, what Daniel hears, because Daniel is on that team. He's considered a wise person. He's put on that team that was in charge of interpreting the dream. And he's told, we're going to cut you to pieces and burn your house to the ground. The Lord works all things together is either an incredibly uh, amazing encouragement or a taunt in hard times. Because we think, how? How could he work this together for good? They become bitter words. How could, be God, how could God be watching over them, particularly Daniel, in a moment like this? We have this, this way of thinking when things are, when we, when we suddenly have disaster come upon us, it frustrates this belief that we've held that God is protecting me. He's got me hedged in. He's got walls around me. I'm safe and I'm, I'm secure. And when something comes through, we have this sense of like, well, one got through or God wasn't vigilant enough. Or worst of all, maybe I was wrong altogether and God isn't watching out over me. It was a little bit of dumb luck for a time. How could this be used? And yet it is used. It's used by God, this horrible moment. Every moment God is working in. We need to be convinced that God is with us. And the point isn't that in the middle of hardship, we need to wrap some narrative around it that you should know as soon as hard times hit, oh, well, of course my finances are really hard. Not because God's teaching me a lesson that in a few years, this, this, and that. You can try to wrap it around it. Honestly, I've, my experience, I never find out why the hard thing happened until well after it happened. And so the only thing you really can do is just be faithful to God in the middle of it and know that he is with you. As we read uh, Daniel's response later on, we're going to jump a few verses ahead. Uh, when Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone uh, out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. And he asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a hard decree? And Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went in uh, to the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned uh, to his house, the one that is supposedly will be turned into rubble in a few hours, and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them uh, to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven. 
there's this amazing moment where he, the trouble comes, and instead of panicking, bargaining, freaking out, he goes and he prays and he seeks the Lord. And it's so simple, but it's so critical. Now, I've got to tell you something. If you ever think about being a pastor, you should be warned about this, because I don't know if I was. Whenever you're going to give a sermon, you live it that week. I don't know why. It's always what it is. I, it's like, it comes up, and I'm like, I'm going to be talking about long-suffering. Oh, no. Here it comes. So this, I, actually, this was, this was supposed to be for last week, but as you know, I was sick. But So this all happened two weeks ago, but it was in preparation for this. Tuesday morning, I wake up, getting ready. I don't know why this is my habit. I check my email, like one of the first things in the morning. It's like I'm telling my wife I love her. It's just always it's so important to me. I got to check it. So I check it. I got an email. OHSU is billing me for $7,400. And that's how the morning started. There's my trouble. And I just practice this from like, when trouble comes, you have to trust in the Lord right away and see what comes of it. Darn. So here's the story of how that happened. As, as a lot of you know, I have a, a condition, a tumor in my pituitary that creates too much growth hormone. I've had two surgeries, and one of the things I have to have is monthly injections. Once a month, I go in and I get an injection. Now, here's the thing about that injection. The pharmaceutical company that makes this are the only ones in the world that make a medication quite like that. So what does that mean? It's extremely expensive. $9,000 per shot. Now, here's the thing. I almost feel like we should thank pharmaceutical companies because they're so unifying. In the same way orcs unify Middle Earth, that's what big pharmaceutical companies do for America. It doesn't matter who you are. We all hate them. We are all united. If someone said, tomorrow we're storming every big pharmaceutical company, everybody would show up. We'd all be there with our weapons and pitchforks ready to go. Horses riding up behind us. We look, it's Al-Qaeda. And they say to us, let this be the hour we draw swords together. And we would say, yes, <laughs> we are one today. So this, this company, they $9,000 per shot. They do these things when they know you have no other option or you're going to die without it. And that's why we don't like it. So what they do is, the reason they bill so much is they want to bill the absolute living daylights out of your insurance. And then they say, well, you can come to us. We'll help you out. We'll give you a copay assistance card, so we'll pay your copay that's left over. So really what it is, they just want to bill your insurance for all they can get for their own research and development, and then they write off the rest of their ridiculous $9,000 injection. So for years, I've been getting this injection, and I actually don't personally pay for it. My insurance pays through the nose, and then the, the pharmaceutical company's like, we'll pay it for you. I'm like, no, you're not. You're writing it off for yourself. And I switched insurances. It used to get shipped to my house. Elena gave me the shot. She's good. Yeah, and it's a big needle. So she's, she's a pro. If you need an 18-gauge shot, uh, I know someone to send you to. Um, and so I uh, used to get sent new insurance. The new insurance looked at the price of that injection, and they were like, yeah, we're not paying for this. We are not going to bill it through RX. We're not going to do it. So I disputed with them. I fought them. They said, no, I'm panicking because that's really expensive, and it kind of saves my life. And so they said, well, it's a medical expense. So now once a month, I have to huff my keister all the way up Pill Hill to OHSU and get the shot in the unit so it can be billed as a medical expense. And that's why OHSU is billing me for $7,400 because they didn't have the copay assistance card. It didn't go through. I'm panicking because I'm like, do they only pay if it bills through? You guys have insurance. No, there's an RX side. There's a medical side. They're not the same. 
Well, I get it all worked out, and, but I'm, I'm panicking in the meantime because I'm caught between two things. I'm caught between a multi-billion dollar pharmaceutical company, far more powerful than little old me. On the other side, I've got this multi-billion dollar insurance company with much deeper pockets and more lawyers than me, and they're fighting, and neither of them wants anything more than a lot of money. And as it works out in the end, the insurance company was stupid. Because do you know what? If it's billed as a medical expense, it does. It goes against your deductible. So then when I got the insurance card, finally worked out, the, the pharmaceutical company paid the bill. The pharmaceutical multi-billion dollar company paid my deductible. Why well, Everything's free for the rest of the year. Like, that's crazy. I had advanced imaging done a week later. It's free. It was gonna, it, the initial cost was $1,700. Now the insurance company has to pay for it. It's like Heyman getting hanged on his own gallows. It's glorious. <laughs> it's this amazing thing to where like, I told you that story. I was nervous to write that in the sermon because it's kind of a complicated story. And if I lost you, that's totally okay. And the reason I think it's important to know it's complicated is who would invent that? You look at your cell phone in the morning, $7,400. Who's going to think, I know exactly how this is going to go down? The copay assistance card, the insurance, the way that things get billed through medical. They just shot themselves in the foot, and I'm, I'm totally free to go. I wouldn't have thought that. Yet God works incredibly in the middle of that. And so, yeah, that morning I was like, I have to pray. Somehow, this $7,400 isn't going to kill me. And it turned out that it was actually the best medical billing news I've received in a long time. Merry Christmas, Sam. Everything's free for the rest of the year, which is great because I tore my rotator cuff last week. So thank you, God. That's why you're going to see me doing this. This arm goes up. This one stays down. As Jason said, John McCain style. It's just going to stay right there. You know, what I, the whole thing comes down to this is how important it is to just honestly seek God and don't panic in the meantime when, it's, when it shows up as trouble. And it's maddening how simple that advice is, but the best advice is simple. To make all matters, God matters. Everything's a God thing. Give him the right of first refusal in your life. And when something comes up, the first one this goes to is the Lord, and it's going to stay there. And I'm going to stay there trusting him when it starts to get really uncomfortable when I start to panic and I want to fix it and I want to take control of it myself, I'm going to trust him. Because when we're close to God, he does a few great things. One is that he takes what the enemy meant for evil and he makes it for your good. I mean, honestly, I won't say the insurance company because they, I mean, they really are rich. Like they might sue me. I don't know. But the insurance company were very intent on, they didn't want, they wanted to make more money off of me. They did not want to pay for that. And they made an enormous, I mean, it was, it was kind of meant, honestly, for my financial harm. And now, nanner, 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 they got to pay for all this stuff now. God turned it for my good. He also convicts us of change if the problems are self-inflicted. You know, sometimes we're in a moment of disaster and, we're, and we're, we're freaking out and we can trust that, you know, if you do need something changed in here, God's not going to be unfaithful and not point that out to you. And he'll do it in the most tender way possible, the way that invites you into change and doesn't point at your past to make you feel terrible. When trouble comes and it comes right at the front door, the only place that is worth going is to go to the Lord. Daniel does the wise thing as the wise man. He goes straight to God and not to his natural efforts. He doesn't begin bargaining. He doesn't begin begging. He goes and he seeks God. And God makes it one of the best things that's happened to these poor and beaten down people since the exile has begun.
Now, I want to read the dream. So this is Daniel speaking. He comes, he's had the dream. He's now had a repeat of the dream. He knows what it is. He's being brought before Nebuchadnezzar, who up till now, I think, has been entirely reasonable. And he's going to speak to him. He says, as your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come. Am I starting the same spot that was? Good. Uh, And the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. He says, your majesty looked and... uh, Just want to make sure I'm in the same spot. Good. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, and its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet of iron and partly baked clay. While you were watching, a rock uh, was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue in the feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold were all broken into pieces and became like chaff in a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream, and now we will interpret it for the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory, and you In your hands has been placed all mankind, the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler of them, and you are the head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, it will crush and break all others. Just as you saw, uh, the feet and toes were partly baked clay and partly iron. So this is a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron even in it, even as you saw iron uh, mixed with clay. And so the toes are partly iron baked with clay. So the kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. This is a a very fascinating dream. And I think it's interesting, one of the ways it says it started, it says, as your mind was troubled, as it turned to things, Before he went to sleep that night, the king was obsessing and thinking about his kingdom and where it fit inside of history, meaning that to some degree, this dream is a reflection of his own thoughts. God has also been speaking to the king, though, even in the midst of his own thoughts. And we find that God is speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, even though some natural explanation can be given. You know, sometimes we think that if if I'm going to recognize something as this was God, it will be completely and totally supernatural, and it'll be a great surprise. And sometimes it really is. But God definitely also works through things that could have to some degree a natural explanation. It does not follow that just because some human explanation can be given that God wasn't in the middle of it. 
one of the great divine dreams of Scripture, does have to some degree a reasonably natural explanation. But God uses natural and supernatural to guide his purposes. God must be thanked for everything in your life. Not to identify certain things as miracle things and certain things as natural. Everything in your life comes from the goodness of God. Every little thing, things that you can say that seem natural and, and normal. Um, even for instance, I, I opened up the mailbox. I forgot that you guys ever done unclaimed Oregon. You can go on there and like maybe like you overpaid and they can't find you to pay you back. I got on there and like Elena had money. So I put it in there. It came in the, in the check and I got it. And I saw it in the mail and I, I realized, look at it like this is God giving us something really, something special. Like this is, this is God at work, even though I could have a natural explanation that we paid a bill, they tried to pay us at an old address, couldn't get it to us, and we're getting it now. God is still there. He's still in the midst of it and still doing those things and deserves to be thanked. How much more would you experience God if you recognized his greater work in your whole life and stop naturalizing good things and saying that wasn't the Lord? We would experience him so much deeper. I want to go over a few things about the statue because it's important to know. Now, each little piece of metal in its little area represents an actual literal empire, and they're counting from this time to the arrival of Christ. Now, Babylon, that's a given. We get that one right out of, we get that one right in here. That one's the golden head. Done. Now, after this, there are a few people that disagree, but honestly, overwhelming majority of Christians agree on this interpretation. The silver arms of Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia is the one that came after them. We actually can read their conquest in scripture. It was King Cyrus. They came in and they very quickly, absolutely and thoroughly dominated Babylon. They are greater, they're more powerful. They're actually the kingdom. Cyrus was the one that commissioned people, especially the wealthy and wise to go back and rebuild Jerusalem and let Jews go back to Judah. And so I guess our question has to be, in what way is Medo-Persia inferior to Babylon? One of the big interpretations of this whole thing, one of the main images is how the inferiority of these empires works its way down. We find that it's not power or opulence because honestly, in those regards, Medo-Persia was far greater than Babylon. Historically, we know that. Even scripturally, we know that, that it was not long after this that Persia comes in and dominates them. It's in about a 70-year span of time. Context reveals what it is, though that it's an inferiority of honor and purity. The Bible's theme is clear. Human history, opposed to a humanist interpretation, it's marching further and further into an utterly sinful state. It marches further and further into it, not towards utopia. With the passing of empires, the problem is gonna get worse. The bronze legs and torso is Greece, and the iron feet and clay is Rome. And here the point is made really clear because the vision is very clear about those, those iron feet and the clay. They are the most dominant empire in the entire statue. The way iron breaks everything, so Rome will break and dominate and control everything. And that is an accurate historical interpretation of Rome. They were unparalleled in their power. Most empires had things that were issues and other people they had to hold at bay and other empires far out. There was a time that Rome dominated the world to such a level, they called it the Pax Romana. Nobody could challenge Rome. It was complete stability across the empire. 
It was when Carthage fell as the beginning of the Pax Romana. Utter domination. And their weakness really did prove, as this vision says it, it is the unity in the Roman Empire. It did split east and west. It split to where the Western Empire of Rome uh, that had the city of Rome in it falls pretty quickly. However, the eastern side of the empire, known later as the Byzantine Empire, endures for thousands of years. It fell in the mid-1400s. That's right. The Roman Empire finally fell completely 167 years before the Mayflower set sail for the New World. That is one heck of an empire. Honestly, Rome might be the most dominating empire in human history. And yet God measured it as, as nothing more than weak and brittle feet. God measures greatness not by power, not by longevity, not by the same rubrics that we use, but by how united and close and holy those kingdoms were, how, how much sin and depravity continues to get in, how it continues to spread. Rome might have been great by our regards, but it was inferior to the ones that went before it because sin in the human nature became worse over time. It is truly foreign values, but it's really important when we see this that we realize God's value system with us. There are things that mean opulence and power and success, and everybody agrees on it. Everybody agrees on it to the point to where when God states his belief system on what really is superior and inferior, it messes with our brains in the same way of thinking that Neo-Babylon, which only reigned for about 100 years, was in some way so far superior to the Roman Empire that ruled the world with an iron fist. And so it is that with success, with honor, with respect, the things that we say are so valuable, the things that I will pursue my life chasing, God wants you to know that they are not worth pursuing over him. To seek first his kingdom and his holiness is what separates these matters. That even though human history is marching towards a darker and darker place, through Christ, a light is dawning and dawning. And that even though dark will become darker, light becomes lighter. So go to the light, make your life's pursuit and everything about it, seeking oneness with God. This is the most noble and greatest thing we could ever do to add to who we are, that when uh, our bodies are put into the ground and when our time has come, the honor that will be attributed to our name will not have to do with wealth or the honor that we had on this earth, but that which we got from God, our oneness with God and our connectedness with him. If it's true of empires, it's true of the individual. Now, as I said, these aren't the only empires in human history. Many rise up, but these are the four, counting from uh, Nebuchadnezzar to Jesus Christ. Nebuchadnezzar wondered, where does my empire, where does my legacy fit in the human story? And God revealed that mystery to him. I want to read a little bit about the interpretation of the rock. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left uh, to an, another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out from the mountain, not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron and the bronze and the clay and the silver and the gold to pieces. 
the great God has shown the kingdom, or has, excuse me, the great God has shown the kingdom what will take place in the future. The dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. The kingdom of God is built on Christ. The moment that Christ is born, his kingdom is established on earth and Rome became the second most powerful empire on earth, the second most powerful kingdom. The stone is this beautiful picture. It's, it's, such, it's so accurate of Jesus, is it not? It's natural, it comes from this world, but it's not made by the creation. Cut out from something that is natural, but it's cut out by God and created by him. In the same way that Jesus is born within a woman, but he is not created by humanity. God created him within that, that he would come out and he would represent us, be our champion, be the one that represents us before the Father, but he is from the Father himself, this great unifier. And that is gonna be something that begins and it is worth subscribing to. You could devote yourself entirely to the Roman Empire and you would have about 2,000 years of having somewhere to be a patron to. You devote yourself to the kingdom of heaven and it will grow and expand and it never dies. The investment that only ever grows. Human history marches towards darkness, but a light has dawned and the light becomes lighter and lighter. And one day that light is gonna fill the world and overshadow everything that's happened before it and the light's going to win. And the dream, it ends with the ultimate dream of Jesus. Jesus is the dream of all humanity. Everyone who's ever given their life to Jesus will find that they've been dreaming about him for a long time before that. This sense of feeling of like, I don't just need a small reset. I need someone to straight up save me. I don't need something to, that's gonna like kind of help me make a few adjustments. I need to be a completely and totally different person if this is gonna end up any better. I don't need a little bit of hope for my wife and my kids or my husband, my family. I need an absolute and utter savior. Dreaming, we find ourselves of one that would rescue. We find ourselves dreaming of one that will bring justice, of one day when these things will be set right. I don't know, say pharmaceutical companies will charge $9,000 per injection. Dreaming of a day when everything is fixed and it was all worth it. The dream of all mankind is the Messiah and the dream ends at that place, that he is the dream. All things will always stream back to the Lord. And the purpose of the dream, why would, why would God satisfy the curiosity of this pagan king? Why would he possess him to have such an idea of someone needs to have the dream and then tell me what it means? It all came down to this, and this is what the Lord sought to accomplish that day. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all of its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained in the royal court. All the mystery, all the history, and the purpose that's revealed comes down to this. God sought to exalt 
these Judean men, these Jewish men, to places of authority that they could protect and shepherd the people. They needed an advocate. This is a, a time in history and a nation in particular that everything went through who you know. How high up the person you know is, is the more secure you are. Now for the, for the Jewish people, God has protected and watched over them by placing someone they know at the right hand of the king over um, not just its uh, main royal province in the center, but able with the authority to set up his own people, other Jewish men to protect the people and to bring security to God's chosen people. It's an amazing thing to where God worked in a dream in one man's life so that through his authority as king, he would be beholden unto the Jews and that he would put them in a position to protect all the people. Now, I doubt that Daniel was thought that morning when he got what was the equivalent of my email. When someone came to him and said, you are going to be killed and cut to pieces because no one can interpret this dream, that he thought to himself, aha, I know exactly how this is going to go. God will give me the same dream, then I'll interpret it, then I'll be in charge of Babylon, and then I'll put Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in charge of the areas outside of town, and we'll have everybody covered. Thanks, God. I imagine he was really scared. I imagine that he had no idea how it would play out. But he trusted God because for some reason, Daniel seems to have the kind of faith that God works the night shift. That when Daniel was asleep, God did something. That when Daniel, he's, he is in the council of wise men, he has authority, not enough to execute it or to care for people. He's worrying, thinking about how they're going to be protected, that God already acted and did something. He began a process that something amazing could happen. In our resting, God doesn't give up. In Daniel's resting, he didn't give up. He was at work even when Daniel slept. And it might have presented itself as disaster. It shows up looking a lot like chaos and smelling a lot like God's abandonment. And yet it's the beginning of something that is the best thing that's happened to them after all the terrible things that have happened. Conquered, exiled, jettisoned, made to live in a pagan palace. And now finally God's established them in enough authority that they can care and protect their own people. He never relents from watching and caring out for them. And he never relents from watching and caring out for you. Life troubles are no evidence that God has abandoned you. It does not stand because God might just be at work doing something amazing. And sometimes it shows up smelling a little bit like chaos and feeling a little bit like exposure. So what do we do? We trust more. We trust a lot more. We trust knowing that God works the night shift and resting easy, knowing that when I let go of this thing, he continues to work on my behalf. He continues to do things for me. This posture, this place of faith of, I need to trust that God is at work in my life around me. When my hand is to him, when it's not to it, it's a blessing to the whole being. It heals the body, it soothes the soul, and it binds the spirit to God. It is a living faith, knowing that God is watching over us constantly and protecting us. I want to pray that we're reminded always of his action in our life, that through natural or supernatural explanations, he has been good to us, that he will continue to watch over us, that he works out chaos for our good, 
And when chaos presents itself, we are not to panic. We are to give God the right of first refusal, to rely on him, to go to him in prayer, and to see what he makes of it. Lord, this morning, we just, we turn ourselves up to you and over to you that we would be facing you and all that you're doing. Lord, we understand that you are working in ways that are obvious and you work in ways that are mysterious. Lord, give us faith in your goodness that whether it is obvious or whether it is mysterious, we would have faith that you work things together for our good. God, I pray that you would uh, let that peace sink down, that it would heal the body, that it would drop blood pressure, that it would heal who we are as we feel the peace of how you care for us. God, I pray that it would soothe the soul, that we would no longer be in constant panic, that when trouble comes, we spend a whole day in worry and only have peace once you finally have acted. Let us have peace, God, because you're with us. And Lord, may it bind our spirit with you that our faith would grow more and more and more as we open up our interpretation of what it looks like when you are in our life, that it would develop a deeper faith in us, that we would experience you every moment, every day, and that we would grow to know you more. Lord, I pray for good sleep over us tonight, that it would come to us easily and quickly and swiftly because we know that you work the night shift you are at it, that it is a good thing to hand it over to you. I thank you so much for your incredible faithfulness. Thank you for your provision. In your name we pray. Amen. There is a prayer team that will be up here that would love for you to come forward uh, if you have anything you would like prayer for. Uh, And uh, other than that, we will see you all next week.